Then Jesus said to his disciples, Their life, what you will eat, or about your wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not say, they but God feeds them. And how well you are than birds. Since you cannot do this very little thing, why has God been? Yet he in all his splendor rest like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass here, tomorrow is thrown into the fire. How much more will he clothe you? you? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. And your father knows that you his and they be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little Fatlinum. Sell your possessions. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. When and no moth does where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Beat the service. Keep your lamps burnt way down from a wedding, so that when he comes and knocks, and immediately open the door. It will be good for those servants as the watchers. Truly, I tell you, dress himself to serve. Will have them repetitive and be good for those whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this if the owner had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must and I expect him. Okay, so this is audience participation time. This is not a time for you to just think about it. It's time to call out. What words would you use to describe the last seven days of your life? Stressful, hurt. What else? Blessed? Yucky? Anybody else? If you had to use a word to describe your last seven days, what may it be? Grateful. All right, so I hear a lot of variety. I anticipated words that uh, Brother uh, Luke is having up here. I anticipated words like busy, hectic, and unpredictable would be on the list. See, one of the problems with hectic or stressful lives is that stress often robs us of joy. And stress tends to multiply our anxiety. Much of the world news these last two weeks has focused on the conflict in the Holy Land that is occupied by those who identify as Israeli and those who claim Palestinian heritage. In the past, peace accords and treaties have been brokered and broken. But I noticed last Sunday, Reuters News Service tweeted a video of our president not calling for peace, but for calm. 
What is the difference between lasting peace and temporary calm? I believe what is needed to possess true joy is different than that which is needed to experience passing happiness. What is required to exchange the anxious life for the abundant life that is promised in John chapter 10. I learned very early in my training to be a pastor. I took a course in pastoral counseling. And one of the textbooks for that course was this book by Larry Crabb, The Basic Principles of Biblical Counseling. And in this book, Crabb identifies that significance... And security are man's basic psychological needs. See, last week we were introduced to the foolishness of trusting in one's own ability to produce possessions, to provide security and significance. So if we do not get our security or our significance from that which we produce, how can our needs be met? I believe our needs for security and significance are found not in our possessions, but rather in the Father's good pleasure. This week in the text that was dramatized for us just before the sermon, Jesus specifically contrasts the fleeting possessions with the abundant life that is marked by the Father's good pleasure. Because God is a good, good Father who desires to bless his people. I believe that we do not find security or significance in possessions. But rather we ought to not worry, trust God. Now some of you have a song that's singing in your head right about now. I only have one reggae album in all of my diverse music collection. And that one is not because of my love for reggae, but for my appreciation of the vocal dexterity of the artist. I purchased the 1988 CD, Simple Pleasures, as one of my 13 CDs for a penny that some of you also got in the 80s. But by far, the most played track on the Simple Pleasure CD is Don't Worry, Be Happy. But my advice for us this morning is not, don't worry, be happy. My advice is, don't worry, trust God. And if one of you wants to put that to music, I'd be glad to buy that CD as well. See, in the previous paragraph of what was read for us that we studied last week, we were introduced to a fool who trusted in his own abundance of possessions to give his life security and significance. But the problem is, is that the more that we possess, the more that we become anxious about protecting what we have. 
I've made the observation that homeless encampments are rarely walled and gated. Six-foot walls and iron gates surround estates of abundant possessions. Because anxiety does nothing that benefits us, and anxiety does nothing that blesses God. And so that's why Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life. And then he gives some examples. He says in verse 24, think how God feeds the birds. But these aren't any birds. Jesus says, consider the ravens. Ravens were considered unclean according to the Old Testament law. A predatory and a scavenging bird, but yet God provides for them food. You may recall that Noah sent a raven before he sent the dove. And in Genesis, we read that the dove went out and the dove came back. But before the dove's trip, we read he sent out a raven and the raven just disappeared. Because to the the Jews, raven were throwaway birds, birds of no account. But Jesus says, even consider the raven. Does not God feed them? See, my daughter is deathly afraid of bees. But even bees have their purpose. I mentioned a few weeks ago that some of God's creatures seem to have no purpose, and I named a cockroach. But I was kindly told that cockroaches make great bait for certain fish. And I don't know what it may be, but I'm sure one of you may know a good use for crows or ravens. But to Jesus' audience, they seem like throwaway birds. Yet God takes care of them. And if God takes care of the throwaway birds... How much more can you trust that God will take care of you? Don't be anxious about this life. If God takes care of throwaway birds, God can take care of you. Then in verses 27 through 28, Jesus says, not only the birds, but consider the the flowers and the grass. In the ESV, it mentions the lilies. In the NIV, it says the flowers of the field. So, Perhaps it is because of this season of health that Anne and I find ourselves, or perhaps it's due to the late moisture of winter, but this year I have particularly appreciated the daffodils, the lilies, the tulips, and the irises that have bloomed around the parsonage. I am now finding that those who came before me were faithful to leave something of beauty that has outlasted their presence. Jesus says, consider the wildflowers. Does not God make them beautiful? And the best thing about those flowers I just mentioned is there's no tending necessary. They just show up. And God allows them to demonstrate their beauty. Now, if some of you want to thin out the bulbs, I'll talk to you at the end of summer. But, but I, I'm also aware how the, the winds and the rains in April played havoc with many of our pasture burns. 
But the ample moisture has made these pastures morph from brown to black, for those who are able to burn, to the richest green that I have ever noticed in the few years that we've been here in the Flint Hills. And Jesus says, consider the grass. It's going to be brown soon, ready for fire. Yet for right now, God causes the lilies to be beautiful. He causes the grass to produce lots of protein, to which the rancher said, Amen. (laughs) Don't worry. Trust God. See, our stressors are listed, if you look at verse 23, verses 25 and 26, verses 29 to 30, Jesus talks about the things that bring stress and anxiety into our life. But I'm not going to give a lot of time to these because you know what adds stress to your life. Or maybe I should say, you know who adds stress to your life. You know the things that you worry about. But verse 31 says, With our eyes and our hearts set on his kingdom, and by kingdom I mean allowing God to rule, allowing God to have his way. I believe that's what the Bible means when Jesus talked about the kingdom. The kingdom is any place where God is able to rule. And if we set our eyes and our hearts on his kingdom, on his rule, he makes sure that we have enough of the other stuff, too. Don't worry. Trust God. Because it goes on to say in verses 32 through 34, the, notice the all capital letters, the safe investment. Not a safe investment, Not one safe investment. Jesus says in these verses that there is the safe investment, which is to invest in treasures that will not fail. You know, I'm just not getting the whole Bitcoin and cryptocurrency thing. For a little bit better than 50 years in the late from the late 1870s until the 1930s, America's currency was backed by gold. Every U.S. dollar had a certain amount of gold in reserve. Roosevelt changed the ratio of gold to dollars, and later Nixon abandoned the standard totally. So now I'm told dollars have no intrinsic value. They are, their worth is totally dependent upon our faith in the U.S. government to keep them valuable. And if having faith in our government is hard enough, now investors are placing their trust in something called the blockchain network. And you can invest in something that does not exist that is called Bitcoin. Two weeks ago, one Bitcoin was worth nearly $59,000 for one Bitcoin. Yesterday, it was worth under $38,000 for that same Bitcoin. In other words, in the last two weeks, each Bitcoin has lost $21,000 in value. 
Jesus says, don't invest in Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. He says, you need purses that will not fail. He says, you need to make investments that will not fail. Invest in the things of his kingdom. He says in Matthew, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then his good pleasure will add all of these other things that you need as well. Now, I never want to turn the church pulpit into a a stage at a comedy club because I'm just not that funny. But sometimes humorous stories will help us to remember the point of Scripture. The point of Scripture is that we need to invest in that which is permanent, the safe investment. Ann Landers ran a story about a man who all his life, every time he got paid, took $20 out of his paycheck and he put it underneath his mattress. Then he got sick and he was about to die. As he was dying, he said to his wife, I want you to promise me one thing. Well, promise what, she asked. I want you to promise me that when I'm dead, you will take my money from under the mattress and put it in my casket so that I can take it all with me. He died, and his wife kept her promise. She went in and got all that money the day that he died, went to the bank and deposited it, and wrote out a check and put it in his casket. Maybe you heard the one about the fellow who had worked so hard for so long to build a successful company and a personal portfolio, but yet he was quite perturbed over having to leave everything behind when he died. The wealthier he got, the more disturbed he became about leaving it behind. So one night he prayed with unusual fervor. God, I need to take something with me. I've worked so hard for all of this. So please, please, let me take some of it to heaven. And to his surprise, God heard his voice. No, came the answer. It is forbidden to bring the things of your earth to heaven. But please, he begged, may I bring just one suitcase with all the things that matter most to me? All right, God said, but only one. Why is God a base? So the man set about disposing of all of his holdings and converting everything he had into gold bricks. And he packed a suitcase with millions and millions of dollars in gold, and he stashed it under his bed. The night came when he died, and he grabbed that piece of special luggage as he began to soar towards heaven. An angel met him at the gate and told him the baggage was not allowed. But but I have special permission from God. Just ask him. And the angel asked, what could you possibly bring that would be so valuable? Would you please open the suitcase so that I can see? And with obvious pride, the man set the case down and opened it up. He snapped the heavy latches 
and beaming with joy, he waited for the angel's response, only to see that his heavenly greeter was perplexed. Pavement? You brought pavement to heaven? Jesus says we need to invest in the things of eternal importance, not the things, the possessions, the goods that distract us here. See, Jesus encourages, no, he doesn't actually. He commands that we would gather money bags that do not grow old. In the last 15 years, I've learned that things that traditionally appreciate do not always do so. Real estate used to be a no-brainer investment. And students have borrowed tens of thousands of dollars for a college degree, only to graduate to a job market where $15 an hour is considered good money. See, what used to be a sure investment is no longer a sure investment. People have had their treasures stolen by criminals with a gun or by thugs in business suits. Estates have been destroyed by moths, not only with wings, but some have been destroyed by the moths of a crumbling economy. And also, let us not forget the treasure of a good reputation. And we know of good reputations that have been stolen by our temptations or destroyed by the moths of sinful nature. I wonder, is there any better way for for our Heavenly Father to demonstrate His care and His good pleasure than by taking us unto Himself for eternity? That's why in the following verses, I see that we need to be ready and watching for His, fill in the blanks, pens ready, His ultimate pleasure. See, Jesus talks about the Father's good pleasure to bring the kingdom. But his ultimate pleasure is that we would enjoy his presence for all eternity. Beginning there in verse 35, I see that Jesus says, You must be dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. This command to be dressed for action is set in the context of a wedding. And ancient weddings set the stage for many traditions that we do today, but people rarely know why. This anonymous booklet, published by the Institute in Basic Youth Conflicts, but there's no author anywhere to be found, details 10 steps of the Jewish wedding that sets our expectations for what Jesus meant when he spoke of the church as his bride. See, in the Jewish wedding, the prospective bridegroom took the initiative and traveled from his father's house to the home of the prospective bride. Kind of sounds like the Christmas story, doesn't it? Secondly, the father of the woman then negotiated with the prospective bridegroom a price that must be paid to secure his bride. And 1 Corinthians 6 tells that Jesus paid the price to secure the bride with his own blood. Now, when the bridegroom had paid the purchase price, the marriage covenant was thereby established. At that point, the man and the woman were regarded to be husband and wife, even though there had been no physical union. 
Just like now, we are set apart. We are sanctified as the body of Christ, even though we have not physically joined him in the heavenlies. See, the moment that the covenant was established, the bride was declared to be set apart exclusively for the bridegroom. The groom and the bride then drank from a cup over which the betrothal benediction had been pronounced. This symbolized that the covenant relationship had been established. And as now we drink the wine and eat the bread, we remember a covenant relationship that is sealed by the blood of Christ. After the marriage covenant was in effect, the groom left the home of the bride and returned to his father's house, and he remained there from a period of about 12 months to prepare a home, usually an addition on his father's home, to receive his bride unto himself. And so the groom was separated from the bride as the groom prepared a home for the bride. Kind of sounds like what's happening right now. Did not Jesus say, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also? And during this period of separation, the bride then would gather her wardrobe and prepare for married life. The groom prepared living accommodations while the bride prepared herself as we are preparing ourselves for eternity. After this period of separation, the groom, the best man, and other male escorts left the house of the groom's father, usually at night, and conducted a torch-lit procession to the house of the bride, which sets us up for this story. The bride didn't know when construction would be complete. She knew he was coming, She could roughly estimate, yeah, it looks like he's about done, but did not know the exact night that the groom would come for her. So the bride was expecting her groom to come for her. However, she did not know the exact time. Thus, the groom's arrival was preceded by a shout, as we see in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. When the Lord comes back, it will be preceded by a shout of triumph. The groom received the bride with her female attendants and then returns to the father's house where they enjoy a marriage feast. Kind of sounds like what the Bible says happens in heaven, doesn't it? The marriage supper of the Lamb. The bride and the groom then entered into the bridal chamber and in the privacy of that place entered into physical union for the first time. And our union with Christ will be complete when we see him face to face in heaven. I saw someone just smile and giggle. Hopefully that that warms your insides. Hopefully that tickles your gizzard at the thought of being with Christ for all eternity. And it's within this context that Jesus says, you've got to be ready because you don't know when the groom is coming back to take you unto himself. This idea of being dressed for action became very real to me in the fall of 1985. When I attended Bible college, I roomed in a dormitory that was 19 stories tall. And you can imagine in a 19-story dormitory with hundreds of students living in skyscrapers, there was a disaster preparedness plan. Now, there were no fire drills my first two years at school. But the third year, student services determined that a late-night fire drill would be a good test of the preparedness plan. 
So on a particular night, the fire alarm went off in the girls' dormitory, and they all had to find robes and blankets and jackets and so forth to exit to the courtyard on a Chicago autumn evening. Now, as you can imagine, male students don't always sleep as modestly as the female students. But for the next two weeks, I guarantee you every dorm mate in Culbertson Hall slept with slip-on shoes at the end of the bed and a pair of sweats within reach. And sure enough, the fire alarm went off on Culbertson, and the men went out to the courtyard, and we were warm and toasty, and we were prepared. We were dressed for action. See, I have no idea why the girls' dorm was tested first. But I guarantee that we learned from their example, so we were dressed for action. We didn't know when it was going to happen, but we knew it was coming. And that's exactly what Jesus tells his followers. You don't know when I'm coming back, but you must be dressed and ready and expect me to appear at any time. Just as we knew the fire drill was coming but didn't know when, Jesus said we must be ready for his return. Because the ultimate pleasure of the Father is when the Son of Man receives his bride and we dwell together eternally as Father, Son, Bride, and Spirit, as intended before the creation of the world. So somehow between ice, water, and steam, we've got to come up with the bride so that we can complete the story of the children's sermon this morning. We must be dressed and prepared for the Father's ultimate pleasure to receive us unto himself. Then beginning in verses 37 and following, it actually says we must be awake in verse 37 and we must be ready in verse 40. See, the previous two verses, 35 and 36, were focusing upon the guests at the wedding. But notice a change in language in verse 37. Who is it that is blessed in these verses? The servants. The unimaginable exchange in verse 37 is that the son dresses for service and invites the servants to sit at the table. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 9, Jesus tells a story about a, a banquet. And when the invited guests are all too busy to come to the banquet... He sends out messengers into the roads and the paths and he invites any who will come to the wedding to come to the wedding hall. And Jesus says here, even the servants, even the workers, even the slaves are given seats at the table. Because the invitation of Christ today is for servants come to the table. For us to exchange the anxiety of our possessions for the provision of his good pleasure. Whether you see yourself as an honorable guest or an ordinary servant, Jesus wants you to exchange your anxiety for his provision. 
See, some of you may still be anxious about your eternal salvation. Have I done enough? What else do I need to do? I sure hope I make it to heaven. And the message today is, rather than rely upon your possessions of enough good deeds or religious sacrifices, God invites you to rest, for it is His good pleasure to provide the death and the resurrection of Christ as perfect and complete atonement for yours and for my sin. We read in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in the fourth verse. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. Because it was his good pleasure to offer to us his kingdom so that if we would surrender to him and trust in Christ, we can exchange our anxiety for the abundant life. And hopefully, if I were to ask next Sunday, describe your last seven days, the word would be abundant. Because God's good pleasure is to give us the kingdom. And in his perfect timing, to give us his presence. Father, I thank you for your word that gives us hope. Your word that gives us remedy for the anxiety that we faced. Father, stir within our hearts the ability to say yes to your gift. And to turn away from reliance upon our own good deeds and actions. We trust in Christ, and we proclaim together a confession that this is your world. And so we sing together to your glory. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. It's number 58 if you want to look in the hymn books. Otherwise, the lyrics will be behind me as Jan plays for us.